All right, let's get started. Let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you for blessing us with this time once again to gather and to worship and to dive into your word, Lord. Lord, in all we discuss today, may you be glorified. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so last time we started around a fire, and I'm tempted to do so again. But this time, imagine the fire is several thousand years prior to the last fire, prior to the story of Cademan. We're talking about ancient Israel. And you can imagine all the times they were in exile. Can imagine them in Babylon or wherever else around the fire and an elder from from the tribes of Israel coming up to the fire they ask tell us the story tell us the story and he might begin with the story they'd all heard many times before God, at the beginning of time, created heaven and earth. Earth was still an empty waste, and darkness hung over the deep. But already, over its waters, stirred the breath of God. Then God said, let there be light. And the light began. God saw the light and found it good. And he divided the spheres of light and darkness. The the light he called day and the darkness night. So evening came and morning and one day passed. The story continues. The people recognize what God is doing in this story in the first three days with the heaven, the sea and the land. God constructs a temple to himself and adorns it. This is something anyone in those Mediterranean cultures would have, uh, would have been familiar with, except this God, the Israelite God, uh, does something a little different at the end. Just like the other cultures, he places an image of himself in the center of the temple. But this image of himself is living. God says, let us make man wearing our own image and likeness. Let us put him in command of the fishes of the sea and all that flies through the air and the cattle and the whole earth and the creeping things that move on earth. So God made man in his own image, made him in the image of God, man and woman both. He created them. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? The scholar John Walton says, when God created people, he put them in charge of all of his creation. He endowed them with his own image. In the ancient world, an image was believed to carry the essence 
of that which is represented, an idol image of a deity. Uh, The same terminology used here would be used in the worship of that deity because it contained the deity's essence. This would not suggest that the image could do what the deity could do, nor that it looked the same as the deity. Rather, the deity's work was thought to be accomplished through the idol. In a similar way, the governing work of God was seen to be accomplished in some way by people. So there's a creative element of that nature going on. The literary scholar um, Dorothy Sayers, who translated uh, the Divine Comedy, she was a friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, Uh, She was a mystery novelist in her own right. She wrote in a little book called Mind of the Maker. Is it his immortal soul, his rationality, his self-consciousness, his free will, or what, that gives him claim to this rather startling distinction of being made uh, in the image of God? A case may be argued for all these elements, in the complex nature of man. But had the author of Genesis anything particular in mind when he wrote? It is observable that in the passage leading up to the statement about man, he has given no detailed information about God. Looking at man, he sees in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what he says about the original upon the image of God was modeled, we find only the single assertion, God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently that, the desire and the ability to make things. Our creative creative spirit is a reflection of God's. But not only does he imbue us with his creative nature, he sets it to use almost immediately. Obviously, in Genesis 1, he entrusts us with care over the earth. But in Genesis 2, as we focus in on the story of Adam and Eve, we see God's vision for our creativity. God places Adam in the midst Not of a wilderness, but of a cultivated garden, which he is to tend. He also gives Adam the the ability immediately to creatively name all the creatures that are there on the earth. So he sets them to creative tasks immediately. But another thing we find in Genesis that I found really interesting lately is the fact that in Genesis 2, ah, we're told a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold 
of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. Now, why would the... uh, Why would uh, Genesis... Why would the writer suddenly throw in this detail? He doesn't throw in just details about all the rivers or any places, but, but he tells us there's gold in that land, and there's delium and onyx. These are materials. They're materials that we make things from. They're actually high-value materials in you know, in that time, in, uh, in the time of ancient Israel, in Moses' time. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, jewel, you know, you think of gold, you think jewelry, you think money too. But it became valuable uh, as money because we can make, you know, precious things out of it. The same with onyx stone, you know, it, it adorns things, it's jewels. Uh, and delium is a resin uh, which is used to, it was used to make perfume, as well as many other things. Uh, and so, and so the, the, uh, the writer, inspired by God, tells, is telling us, hey, go look in these places uh, for this material. This material is good. You can make wonderful things out of this material. Of course, we all know what happens uh, <laughs> after, after Genesis 2. We, you know, we fall. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and our nature and the world is corrupted. And yet, God still manages through the rest of the Old Testament to continue to commission artwork from us, continues to commission uh, our creativity, even though it's now tainted by sin. The, uh, the, uh, there are numerous places throughout the Old Testament where you can see this. But the biggest the one, anyone dealing with Christianity and the arts uh, will rush to, and so I am, is, <laughs> is in Genesis. I, I mean, is in Exodus, sorry. Exodus chapter 31. And at this point, the Israelites have been led out of Egypt, and, and they, they need a, a form of a place to worship, a place, uh, a place to give offerings to God. And they're in a bit of a spot, because they're wandering around to several spots. So, so God says they should build a tabernacle to him. And while he's already given some instructions for the tabernacle and for the Ark of the Covenant, uh, here in Exodus 31, he specifically says, these are the two guys who are going to lead up the effort. 
the Lord spoke to Moses. See, I have called by name, called by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with divine spirit, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood in every kind of craft. Moreover, I have appointed with him Aholiab, some of Ahimog, Uh, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given skill to all the skillful so that, so that they may make all, all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin with its stand, and the finely worked vestments, the holy vestments for the priest Aaron, and the, and the vestments of his son, for their service as priest, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They shall do just as I have commanded you. And the great thing is, in chapters 36 through 39, we start seeing all of these things made in their detail. And, and it's amazing the kinds of artwork that's going into this. But in this description, in, in chapter 31, we can, we can identify four things uh, specifically um, that, that can guide us as to how, how we can think as artists who are, uh, who are operating as, as Christians, as worshipers of God uh, for truths we can identify. Those four principles are this. One, the artist's call is a gift from God. Two, God loves all kinds of art. Three, God maintains high standards for goodness, truth, and beauty. And four, art is for the glory of God. Of course, uh, so the artist's call is a gift from God. Uh, back, in, uh, back in verse 3 of Exodus 31, it says, and I have filled him with divine spirit, with ability, intelligence, and knowledge in every kind of craft. So, so God has equipped us. He has given us uh, 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 cre- creative gifts. Uh, those who, who are artists uh, you know, should be skilled. They should, uh, you know, they should have intelligence. They, they should have uh, wisdom, uh, you know, in, in the way they yield their craft. And God loves every kind of art in both th- verse 3 and 
verse 5, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it repeats that, that uh, Bezalel is equipped uh, for every kind of craft. And there are several different kinds of crafts mentioned. doesn't mean that we are all gifted towards every kind of craft. Uh, uh, there is a great difference between <laughs> uh, uh, the, the way I paint and the lumps of things you would call my attempt at sculpture. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but God, in, in the way he talks about the temple uh, or the tabernacle, later the temple, uh, mentions so many different kinds of art. Um, you know, it talks about embroidery as well as the carvings. Uh, there is both, there are three kinds of art that we can clearly see in the tabernacle. There is symbolic art, uh, which is um, which symbolic art is a physical form that stands in for spiritual spiritual reality. So it's symbolic. It's um, uh, a couple of examples of this are the Ark of the Covenant itself, which obviously symbolizes atonement, and uh, the golden lampstand, uh, which are you know represent the light. Of God's glory. There's also representational art. Uh, representational art imitates life by uh, portraying a recognizable object from the physical universe. So, so you know there are many different things uh, around the tabernacle, like uh, the pomegranates on the table where the uh, of the high priest. The interesting thing that I found about even the representational art, though, is that it gets very creative. Those pomegranates are several different colors that you don't normally see pomegranates in. <laughs> but that is uh, the kind of creativity that's going on. Meanwhile, God is describing to these to these artists, things that are representational, but they're representational of things that are in heaven, not, not on the earth. So that requires the imagination of the artist uh, to say, well, okay, you're describing to me this cherubim. I'm going to <laughs> use my imagination and kind of go with what you're saying. But there's an interpretation on the side of the artist, uh, much like, uh, well, uh, in film, where you have a screenwriter, and of course, you know, the screenwriter writes that script, but then that gets passed along to the director, and the director takes that script and okay, I'm going to make this movie that has been written. And, and from there, then that director 
has to pick. Okay, so cameraman and uh, and you know audio engineer and all these other things that that flow out you know originally from that screenwriter's vision. And then there is non-representational art in the temple. And this we probably see most of, though we don't pick up on it. That's pure form. Uh, today we call it often abstract art. But in the tabernacle, we see it in terms of colorful curtains in the holy place. The shape of the physical spaces that made up the complex. All these patterns, all these designs are part of the non-representational art that nonetheless is part of the art that is in that worship space, that worship experience. And it's all conveying meaning. Third, God maintains high standards for goodness, truth, and beauty. Israel's artists were called to make good art, art that was excellent, art that demonstrated thorough mastery of technique in a particular artistic discipline. And they were called to, uh, to art that was uh, representative of their worldview. If it was good, then this art was probably not going to go against uh, what God had commanded them in their lives of the law that he had given them. Uh, and so you're probably not going to see uh, a depiction of some other, uh, uh, some other culture's God in the, in the um, artwork of the Israelites. You're not going to see that in the tabernacle, you're going to see something that reflected their values, their moral standing. Art must be true as well as good. Art is an incarnation of the truth. It penetrates the surface of, the, of things to portray them as they really are. Now, this means that not all art is going to be, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> this, uh, it means we don't always show things that are uh, just the bright side of things. We need to talk about things that, you know, we recognize the brokenness in the world. The world is a scary place. The world is uh, a traumatic and frightening place. And yet, the way we frame this is in a way different than the world. We can recognize that the world is sad, that the world is broken, that the world is scary. But oftentimes, the art of the world leaves it at that. 
the art of the outside world focuses on, okay, here's the pain. Here's, here's the suffering. Here's the violence and the scary things that are in the world. But it doesn't address the answers to that, the answers that we have because of the truth that has been revealed to us by God. And so, and so what godly art, what, what art with hopefully a Christian vision should give us is an art that is truthful, uh, but that truth is, n- is not just uh, uh, hopeless. It is a hopeful truth, because only then can it be the full truth. And God is a great lover of beauty. And how do we know this? We see the world around us. Even in its broken state, we see beauty within nature, uh, within mountains and fields and oceans, and we see beauty in each other. One of the issues in current art, and I would, I would say the modern and postmodern movements of art, is this is an area where there is real struggle. I think because the world does not see the source of beauty so clearly, and this is where apologetically we can, we can really engage with the world, art then uh, has, has sort of given up on the idea of beauty a lot of the time. Uh, you'll see this in a lot of modern art galleries and stuff, and we'll get into issues of where art is, where the, uh, where the current art world is a little further on towards our last sessions. But, uh, but having a lack of a definition of beauty uh, has has led to a lack of need for beauty in certain art. It tries, and this is uh, this is a complaint uh, uh, Dr. Philip Ryken has with it. It tries to show beauty without admitting the truth about sin, or it does not or it simply focuses on sin uh, without uh, addressing beauty or the source of beauty. Finally, art is for the glory of God. Now, this is less of an observation from uh, Exodus 31 and more of uh, almost more of what we can directly see uh, as a warning from Exodus 32. What happens in Exodus 32? <laughs> that is when Moses goes up on the mountain. And meanwhile, down there in the valley, 
Uh, people say they, they need a God. They need a tangible God. And so, and so Aaron, uh, eventually under pressure from the people, makes the golden calf for the Israelites. The, uh, the whole episode kind of shows us what happens when we pursue art for our own purposes. The art itself becomes an idol. It happens all the time. Or the artist becomes an idol. Uh, which, as John Calvin said, you know, our hearts are idol-making factories. And, and so when our hearts are not set on God, when we are making art, then our hearts will ultimately idolize something. We will idolize the art. We will idolize ourselves. Uh, if, if we are not the artist, we will idolize the artist. This is, this is where a great deal of our culture comes from, is the idolization of our artists. And, and so as Christians, we can begin thinking through these things, keeping in mind uh, where we've come from as creative beings, also our current state. We are sinful people, and so we are never going to fully live up to maybe these principles that we can draw from the passage, uh, but ultimately, and we'll get into this in our next session. Uh, you know, uh, we, we are imperfect, and so we need, uh, we need outside help. We need God's intervention. Um, and so that's the New Testament portion. But uh, does anyone have any remarks, questions? Yeah. Not specifically, but that's, that's a very interesting observation because, yeah, we, uh, God, God uses words uh, to, to create the rest of creation. But then when he's making man, when he's creating Adam, he takes the material of the earth. Uh, and so it's... It, that acts, you know, very much as a picture of, of what he then gives us to do. It's like he, he made us from the, the dust of the earth, from this earthy, organic material. And then he sets us in a garden to tend the garden. And, and he tells us, oh, here are where the... Uh, precious materials can be found and everything is like I, I made you from this earthy organic material you go and make stuff out of earthy organic material yes sir what is the definition of art and obviously this is very debated 
what is the definition of art? Uh, I would... Uh, my, my best definition is, is rooted in creatively producing... Um, uh, creatively producing something, an object... Um, or other work that is valued for its uh, for its beauty, not necessarily for its um, for its intrinsic usefulness, for not for utilitarian value, but uh, for aesthetic value, for value of beauty. Um, and so, uh, even though those things may also sometimes have useful purposes, such as in the tabernacle, we see things that are going to be used, uh, obviously the Ark of the Covenant and things like that. They have a function and yet, they are artistic. They, they have things like the cherubim, like all the ornamentation and everything that exists to stimulate our appreciation of its beauty, of its thoughtfulness, of its skillfulness, not just being a box that you can use for worship. Yes, you look at it, rub your chin, nod, and say, that's very interesting. <laughs> now, it's, uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer um, said, said that judging art, and I don't always agree with Francis Schaeffer, but I, th I think he's got a good general start for it to go here. Art, um, art should reflect, uh, you know, good craftsmanship. Uh, if, if it's, if it's made well in in some sense, well, that's something you can appreciate about it. Uh, beyond beyond that, uh, say, well, is this piece of art? being true to the worldview of the person making it. Uh, and, and so there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of music that I think, you know, is, is that the musicians are, you know, absolutely spot on. And the words that are being sung are abs, you know, uh, you know, they, you know, they're deep. They are, you know, they really resound with emotion. They're, they're definitely giving me the worldview of that songwriter. But there's a distance there. And, and so it's like, okay, that's, that's good art, but... And then, you know, his third criteria was, does it reflect the true worldview? Or, you know, does it reflect the worldview uh, 
you know, that, that the Bible gives us. You know, oftentimes, you know, that's where the divide really comes. Now, you can, you can say, okay, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is well-made, but it doesn't reflect my worldview. Uh, and just recognize that for what it is. If you're engaging with people in conversation, you can say, okay, that, you know, I see what, you know, you're doing there. Ultimately, I have some disagreements, but your craftsmanship is great. On the other hand, because this exists too, and we need to recognize it within the church, there are, you know, there are people who, you know, will create something from, you know, from a good perspective, uh, from a biblically correct worldview, but, you know, they may not be good craftsmen. And, and so, you know, those conversations, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, talking with someone and you uh, <laughs> don't particularly have an appreciation for, you know, uh, the little precious moments drawings or whatever, but but you see that you know where the artist was coming from was you know was a hopeful place. You know you can you can be truthful and and say I I appreciate your motivation. That's that's great. This is not my cup of tea. Because we each have different tastes. We, have, we each have different things fueling our tastes as well. You know, we each have different types of music we like, that we resonate with, things like that. So, um, so you know, personal taste comes into it. But, but uh, Schaefer's idea of, uh, of craftsmanship, truthfulness... And and then reflecting these values are, um, I think, a good place to start. Does that does that make sense? Okay, uh, we are at our forty-five minutes, roughly. So we can uh, we can wrap up unless anyone has anything else. All right, thank you, guys.